Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have a bit of a weird little digression. Today we're going to talk about the medieval art of courtly love, and we're also going to talk about exactly how it came to be, because it really is a weird sort of interjection in our story of history here, something that doesn't necessarily seem to belong. Uh, we spent basically all of the last session talking about Augustine and how, you know, his particular blend of, of stoic, like, self-mastery uh, self paired with his Christianity led to a pretty seriously repressive, for lack of a better term, attitude towards love, sexuality, the whole thing, um, that Augustine was especially hard on himself for his... Um, lust for women and his sexual attraction, um, and how this ultimately would be kind of the foundation for the medieval attitude towards love and towards, you know, romance in general. Um, what we're going to talk about today is kind of the backlash against that. Um, this is a fairly late development, though, in medieval history, so we should, we should keep this in mind, that while we were talking primarily about medieval history, um, and sort of like early Christianity in the last lecture, sort of everything from, you know, like 100 A.D. all the way to like 1000 A.D. Uh, today we're primarily focusing on the 11th and 12th century, um, and we're going to talk about exactly how this changed, how this really strange, really sort of um, alien kind of philosophy came to be so dominant, if only for a little while. Um, and I want to actually start by pointing to the video, um, our discussion of the Arthurian legend, in part because I suspect this is the place that we are most familiar with the idea of courtly love, like I suspect most of us know, at least in some vague sense, the story of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere and how Lancelot apparently factors in all this. Um, and I think the video does a really great job of sort of dissecting the whole canon of the Arthurian legend. Um, in fact, that's part of the reason why I included it, as much as we're not going to, in fact, study King Arthur. I think it's a great sort of thumbnail sketch. And also, it's, it does a great job of sort of discussing the way that history has changed this particular story. You know, I've been emphasizing very much that, like, the history of philosophy is what we are studying here. You need to be aware of, like, how these various changes affect these philosophical ideas. You know, I spent a lot of time on my soapbox last time talking about how Christianity has been altered, corrupted, fragmented, how it changes from its original form by tradition, by history, by po politics, by any number of outside factors. The same is true about literature. Um, about myth, about legends, about history in its own right. Like, the story of King Arthur as a historical figure is obviously very, very lost by the time that all of these various writers get their hands on the story and alter it to suit their particular artistic agendas, whether it's creating the character of Lancelot and supporting the art of courtly love for Chrétien de Troyes, or whether it's something more corrective, like the Vulgate Cycle, arguing that Lancelot was kind of the worst, and therefore, don't commit adultery, kids. Um, this is a surprisingly fast transition, though, you'll notice. Like, Chrétien de Troyes is, is writing in the 12th century, is creating his perfect, you know, courtly love original character in Lancelot, and then it's literally by the 13th or 14th that you've got the Vulgate responding to this version of events by condemning Lancelot and his activities. Um, adultery is not okay. Um, 
And that's kind of what I want to get at here. Like, as much as the courtly love thing is a big deal and it does have a major influence on the discussion of love to come, I also want to sort of emphasize that this moment in history is just plain weird. Um, that it's not straightforward or simple. This wasn't some m movement that just captured the imagination of the entire medieval world the way that we sometimes think it does. I suspect it was very isolated to secular noble circles. Um, a nobility that had, at this point, been sort of living under the thumb of the Catholic Church for a long while and was just starting to get its own sort of independent power and wealth. I suspect that this whole artistic and cultural movement was largely relegated to the nobility because you'll notice that most of the most of the Catholic like clergy, most of the knowledgeable philosophers of the time in the West, were generally opposed to it. Like even Andreas Capellanos, who's largely regarded as like the guy who is, you know, describing the act of courtly love, describing the phenomenon as he sees it, you'll notice that he very quickly turns around and condemns it. Um, I am telling you, you this, Walter, not so you will go ahead and make some foolish love relationship, but rather so you'll avoid it because it will destroy you and because nothing good will come of it. And here are all of the reasons why it is a bad deal. Um, I think Western Europe is in two minds about this one, and it is only in certain cultural circles that this idea of courtly love can survive, and only for a little while. Um, but I also want to talk about how it came to be. Because again, like if I was going to emphasize as much as I did in the last lecture that like Christianity was very much rooting out all sexual desire, like Augustine goes so far as to condemn literally anybody who wants to have sex for wanting to have sex, even if they are married, even if they you know are in a position where it could be conducted legitimately. How do we get to the point that now we have these love relationships, which are potentially even adulterous love relationships, by the way, getting so much freaking truck and acceptance? Um, I should also mention that history, like students of history, scholars of history, tend to up-jump this discussion quite a bit. Um, like, I have been reading on the subject of like romance and religion and I find there are a lot of scholars who get really excited about the troubadours and about the art of courtly love thing and about how adultery is okay in this context and I'm really not sure that that was at any time that big a deal. Like I really don't know. It's entirely possible that there was this whole trend in the nobility and so on and so forth, but I also want to stress that like the average Joe peasant probably had no idea that this was even going on. And if they did, they probably were fairly scandalized by it. Um, it's entirely likely that like every element of the church, i.e. both like the mainline Catholic tradition with the priests and the papacy, and also the like monastic tradition with all those, you know, monks writing to each other, were also scandalized by this and probably had no truck with it. Probably didn't even know it was happening until, you know, you get guys like Andreas Capellanus writing their condemnations of it. Um, but what I do want to point out, like even if this was this kind of minor backwards you know, countercultural movement that never really broke out of the this sort of, you know, weird subsection. This subculture got a lot of attention. Um, historically speaking, 
whether or not Chrétien de Troyes represented a, a large number of people writing about, you know, adultery as though it was something that could be beautiful, could be tolerated, could be, you know, essentially worshipful in its own right, whether or not he was regarded as, as a sage in his own time, he certainly was later. Um, this whole courtly love thing started to seriously infiltrate the world. It would become much more powerful um, in its forms, like through Dante and through the Renaissance and through sort of the modern period. So on the one hand, I'm saying, like, don't take this too seriously. It wasn't this big a deal back in its own time. It was going to be taken seriously, more seriously than it probably was in its own time by the writers who came afterwards. The romance of Arthur and Guinevere, of Lancelot infiltrating the whole thing, of all the sort of way that Camelot collapsed under this, you know, love triangle tryst. This was a story that a lot of people couldn't pass up for one reason or another, whether or not it was actually a decent reflection of what people believed at the time. Uh, but we're already way ahead of ourselves here. Let's start with the early history stuff. Not even the King Arthur business. Like, we're not dealing with him as a historical figure. Mostly I just wanted to talk about him as tying into this whole discussion of courtly love. Instead, I want to talk about the Crusades. We didn't talk a lot about the Crusades in the last lecture, mostly because it wasn't terribly relevant to what was going on. And honestly, like, the actual historical acts of the Crusades aren't terribly relevant to us even now. They were a mess. Like I said, Christianity at its absolute worst. Christianity running away with its power and influence and authority, its lust for wealth in, like, conquest... You know, like, the Crusades are an important part of history. They do absolutely, like, bring Christianity to places where it hadn't been for quite a while. They very much highlighted the, the conflict between the Western Church on the one hand and the Eastern Church on the other, as well as the ongoing tension between Islam and Christianity at this time. Yeah, that's all great, and honestly, like, from, from a pure historical relevance thing, not a whole heck of a lot changed as a result of the Crusades. Like, nobody conquered the Holy Land as much as they thought they were going to. Instead, they just kind of set up a lot of little tiny kingdoms of supposed Christians hanging around in Palestine and on the Arabian Peninsula, which would basically just be holdouts for a long while until they were ultimately all just defeated again, uh, either by Islam in its various forms or by the Ottoman Empire when it would finally sort of rise and end up running, running the show over there. Uh, but that's, again, another story for another day. What's relevant to us is that any time that you have a whole bunch of people wandering off going into territory that doesn't belong to them, you're going to get some cultural exchange there. Even if the ostensive purpose of the entire Crusades business was to take over the Holy Land, kick out the, the Muslims, you know, retake Jerusalem for Christendom, a lot of Islam kind of bled over into Western Europe as a consequence, as people were coming back from the Holy Land. And what's more, as the video stressed, you know, this is also happening with the Reconquista in Spain. Um, gradually, over the course of about a hundred years through the 11th century and into the 12th, Spain, you know, having been conquered by the, the Moors, by the Arab population there, by the Islamic world, um, it was gradually being retaken by the Catholic Church, by, you know, Western Europeans um, in the more 
like Catholic sense. Um, and in both cases, both here on the West, in Spain, and in the East, in the Holy Land, all of these Muslim teachings are gradually infiltrating the lines of Western Christendom. Um, and this is important for a variety of reasons. Like, one of the major things that we didn't talk about last time, and probably should have, um, is the fact that in this process of the Roman Empire just sort of disintegrating under its own weight and the Visigoths sweeping through and taking over the place, um, in the process of like all of Northern Africa being conquered by first the Goths and then by Islam, all of the texts were lost. Like, you've probably heard about the famous burning of the Library of Alexandria. That is actually an unrelated event. But in as part of, like, this huge tradition, all of the centers of learning that used to be available to the West, that used to be available to, you know, Catholicism and Rome generally, were very much falling into the hands of other people. Um, and with the sack of Rome, with the destruction of, of the major urban centers, came a complete loss of all of the philosophy and knowledge that had been sort of uh, gathered together up until that point. For our purposes, the most important consequence of this is that Plato and Aristotle were lost to Western Europe for a good solid five to six hundred years. Like, following the fall of Rome in, you know, the fifth and sixth centuries, up until uh, the Reconquista, you know, Nobody could read Plato and Aristotle in the original form. Like, Western Europe had maybe the Timaeus and maybe a couple of other Platonic dialogues. Zero Aristotle, besides what had existed in the writings of, like, other, especially Christian writers more recently. Um, and whatever fragments existed in those writings, like Boethius quotes Plato and Aristotle a couple of times in the, uh, uh, in the, Consolation of Philosophy, which is like this hugely important text for the medieval world, um, that's virtually all they have of a lot of these writers. Um, that doesn't mean that philosophy isn't going on during these five, six hundred years, but that it is largely speculative. And it's kind of weird what's happening here. Like, all of these scholars regard Plato and Aristotle as the foundational secular sources for knowledge, these most important of important philosophers, and they are trying to pair their understanding of Plato and Aristotle with their Christianity. Like, the, the entire medieval project is trying to make secular wisdom, namely the secular wisdom of Plato and Aristotle, mesh with Christianity. Make the Bible and Plato fit together short. It's a project that, that Augustine had obviously been very invested in. Like He's very much making that happen. It was a project that the early Christians had very divisive views about. Like Tertullian very famously said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Um, why do we need philosophy infiltrating our Christianity? But instead, most people think some philosophy and some Christianity will ultimately point us to the truth. Like, the combination of the two is where we're looking for. Um, but all of this is being done without Plato and Aristotle. Like, nobody has the texts. They only have quotes. They only have these sort of distorted versions. And importantly, during the Reconquista and during the Crusades, Aristotle and Plato, in the original Greek and translated into Arabic, are finally being discovered again, finally being brought to the Western world. 
Um, the Reconquista, especially, like, the guy who was in charge of Toledo, the sort of uh, Muslim king who was, like, ruling in Toledo, he had specifically built this huge library with all these important texts. Um, and he had to leave quickly enough that he abandoned it all there. So all of these crusaders show up in Toledo and suddenly discover this vast wealth of information that they simply hadn't had access to up until this point in time. And as a result, these books, these texts, these manuscripts all get shipped off to the various monasteries. And they are pouring over this stuff and copying these texts of Plato and Aristotle and disseminating them through the Western world. Um, so this 11th century conquest will ultimately lead to the Renaissance. Uh, like the several centuries that, that are taking place between these two major cultural events are a time when Plato and Aristotle are gradually spreading out and all these monks and all these scholars and all these clergy are finally able to access these works for the first time in centuries. And there's some pushback there. Like some some writers like Aquinas are going to get really excited about this and incorporate Aristotle into their theology and their philosophy. Other writers are going to think that Aristotle was a pagan and therefore should not be included in all of our discussion about what the world is like. The Bible should be enough for us, they will argue. Um, what's more, a lot of their Aristotle is getting paired with other scholars, Arabic scholars, Islamic scholars who are writing on the subject. Scholars like Ibn Sina and uh, Averroes, as he's called in the West. Um, scholars that Aquinas is particularly eager to incorporate into his writings and who he will sort of spar with in the Summa Theologica. Um, but that's the thing here. As the West is sort of rediscovering these texts for the first time in, you know, five to six hundred years, this is all business as usual for Islam, for the, the Islamic world. And in fact, the same period that we were calling the Dark Ages of Western Europe is in fact also sort of the Golden Age for Islam. Um, in the 6th and 7th century, when Muhammad founded Islam, when he, you know, is writing the Quran and he is, you know, sort of setting actions into motion and, you know, doing his sort of wars in Mecca and Medina and taking over the, the sort of Arabic world, in the centuries that follow, Islam spreads like crazy. They take over all of northern Africa, all the way to the western shore, at which point they enter Spain and they, you know, have put set up their holdings there. Um, they are constantly a threat to the Byzantines. But what's more, we talked about Islam as though they were this invading threat, this outside force, because to Christendom it very much was. But within the boundaries of the Islamic world, an incredible amount of wealth and culture and philosophy was being conducted on a level that the world had never seen before. Um, the Islamic world was perhaps as advanced a culture as everything west of China could potentially attest to at this point. Um, like, Islamic scholars had built early telescopes that wouldn't have a rival until Galileo made something. They had elaborate timepieces and even early, like, computing machines. Um, it was a shockingly rich, shockingly intelligent, shockingly erudite culture. 
Um, and it's spread, like, all over the place. Like, most of northern and even eastern Africa was very much either sort of incorporated into the Islamic world or the Islamic world was reaching out into it. Like in Mali, where there's like all of a sudden there's this giant pile of gold being discovered, suddenly it becomes this bastion of Islamic culture. You know, all the way in Western Africa. Like, it's a really important moment of history, and we as a culture have kind of ignored it. Because again we don't consider Islam part of the West, which is just dumb and weird, and I don't even know why that is the case. Um, this part of history, like, we talk about the 6th to ninth centuries as, this, as though unilaterally everybody was in the Dark Ages, that it was this time of ignorance and, you know, darkness and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, it was only ignorance and darkness for all those Western Europeans who we are somehow so hung up on because they, you know, accomplished such impressive things after the 16th century. Like, Islam was thriving. This was a great time for the Islamic world. And I want to stress this because, again, it's something that is so frequently overlooked um, in the discussion of, of, you know, world history. It is something that is frequently ignored. Like, it took me until my second year as a master's student for me to start encountering the Islamic world and its accomplishments, to start reading Islamic scholars like Al-Ghazali and Al-Farabi and Avicenna, Averroes, like, incredible thinkers, thinkers who contributed a ton to the sort of scholarship at the time and who very much advanced the culture uh, the culture in their own time and in their own place, but also would serve to be the foundation for really for the accomplishments that would come later in Western European culture. Um, like, I don't know how how to sort of stress this because on the one hand we can't spend a whole lot of time talking about Islamic philosophy. It is sort of a tangent. Um, it isn't quite in the same, like, thrust of history, the same mainline tradition that we are studying here. And its contributions, while important, don't come from the same places and don't lead to the same places. I don't even know how to explain it. It sucks that we do not get to talk more about Islamic philosophy. It is such an important step in the process. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know it. Like, I haven't studied this stuff. Nobody's made me study this stuff. Like, besides a couple of weeks during my medieval philosophy class, during my master's. Like, it's a huge oversight on the part of academia, our culture, etc. Um, but I want to stress it today. I want to stress it today because I think... The question, where did the where the hell did this courtly love tradition come from, is very obviously answered by the answer, it came from the Islamic world. And there's been a lot of strange discussion about this in academic circles. And by strange, I mean that there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not, you know, the Islamic attitude towards love, the Islamic attitude towards philosophy was an important motivating factor in the development of the courtly love tradition. There are scholars to this day who deny it vehemently. Um, and yet it seems so obvious. Like, when you read these two texts back to back, when you look at Ibn Sina's treatise on love and Andreas Capellanus's discussion of love, it's impossible to not notice the, the similarities here. Um, 
it seems like it is very much a part of the historical record that the troubadours, as much as they were very excited about their courtly love tradition, were also very excited about it specifically because they had all read the famous Islamic treatise, The Ring of the Dove, which had been published a little while before, was published specifically to discuss the whole, you know, Reconquista from the Islamic perspective. And these troubadours just loved this book. They carried it around with them. They thought it was awesome. And as a result, they brought lots of its priorities and lots of its ideas with them in their discussion of courtly love. So we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of the fact that this is a huge blind spot in our collective cultural history storytelling. We need to be aware of the fact that academia on the whole is not prepared to talk about this stuff. Because, again, academia has been telling itself the same story about Western Europe for ages. Um, and as a consequence, folks like me who, you know, haven't spent their entire careers, you know, studying Islamic philosophy as well as everything else they, they're studying, we only have a limited knowledge of it. Like, I didn't have to study any Islamic philosophers ever during my undergrad. And as much as it is a huge you know, loss and a huge failure on my part to not rectify that, I am going to try and rectify it insofar as I am going to make you read some. I want you to be aware that, you know, you cannot talk about the history of love in philosophy, the history of philosophy in general, without some discussion of the Islamic contributions here. It's a huge part, and it, the whole history of philosophy doesn't make sense without it. Um, so keep this in mind. This is my tiny little effort to rectify things by taking the little bit of knowledge I have and passing a little bit of that knowledge to you, um, which is why we read Ibn Sina today. Um, I felt compelled to include it. Like, I did a little research outside of what the textbooks had. Once I stumbled across that, that Arthurian, you know, canon video, I was like, of course Islam is a huge part of this. Let me go back to the writers I know. Let me look at the texts that, that refer to this. Um, and I'm still working on it. Like, I've got a copy of The Neck Ring of the Dove, so help me, I'm going to read it, but I unfortunately didn't have time to in the preparation for this class. I am looking forward to it, though. Like, I am thrilled at the prospect of, of making myself more knowledgeable about this. And it's a bummer that I don't have, you know, more to share with you at this point, that it hasn't been a priority in my academic career. So it will be a priority in yours, at least for today. Um, so let's talk about Ibn Sina. Uh, because, again, this is this really pivotal moment in the development of Western philosophy. I wish I could point to more. Like, I wish that I could tie, you know, the Quran to Ibn Sina one philosopher at a time, point to, you know, who Ibn Sina is getting his references from, and who they're getting their references from, who are they riffing off of, who are they developing, and then, you know, draw that all the way back to the, the lines in the Quran, but I can't. Like, I don't have the knowledge, I, I don't know, you know, which scholars are, are especially significant here. Like, I'm, I'm working on it, I'm trying to get there, I'm not there yet. What I will say is that the Quran doesn't have a whole lot to say on the subject of love. 
Not in the way that, like, the Christian Bible is just all over the subject of love. And it's not to say that the Quran completely ignores it. Like, I did, in fact, do a little bit of research, tried to, tried to find relevant passages and stuff. Um, but usually it's framed as love of nation or love of country, love of people, and not so much in the prescriptive sense where, you know, you get this grand theological idea like God himself is love. Or you get these sort of grand proscriptions, love your neighbor as yourself, the way that you see in the New Testament. Neither of those have a whole lot going on in the Quran. Um, and as far as I know, it's like where love is discussed is usually in the framework of God loving people and not even the reverse of, of loving God. Like obeying him, yes, but it's, it's deprioritized compared to the Old New Testament. And again, maybe that reflects my ignorance on this one. I have not studied with, you know, serious Islamic scholars. I have not studied Islamic theology the way that I've studied Christian and Jewish theology. Um, I totally am willing to admit that that is a shortcoming on my, on my part, and I want to know more. Uh, but at the same time, every sense that I get, just from the studies I've conducted, whether they are reliable or not, is that there's just not as much discussion. There is a hugely rich Islamic discussion on love, but I'm not sure how it connects to the Quran, is what it really comes down to. Like, if you read, you know, some of the great uh, Islamic mystical poets, or if you read some of Islamic philosophy, like we see here with Ibn Sina, it's obvious they have a huge premium on love. This is a hugely important part of their culture, a hugely important part of their religious understanding. It's just possibly outside of what the Quran actually says in its like explicit literal sense. It builds on what the Quran says. Um, so let's look at Ibn Sina, because this is this is the one that I am most familiar with. Like I've I've read Ibn Sina before, I know him through Aquinas, I've I've read him like in actual in actuality, just all by himself. Um, I know that he's a big deal, but he's also kind of a late big deal. That's the problem, I suppose. Um, I wish I knew more about his sources. I wish I knew more about what sort of brought him to his conclusions. I wish I knew more about the, the Islamic love tradition before Ibn Sina felt that he could comfortably describe it with this treatise. Um, I wish I knew what he was describing rather than just how he describes it. Um, but this is as good as I've got, so this is, as far as our class is concerned, bedrock. With the definite knowledge that there is more out there. That you should, by all means, especially if this interests you. Like, if you're reading him and seeing him and you think this is really cool and you think he's got a lot of good things to say, go look at all of the footnotes here. Look at some of his sources. Look at the, you know, other... Do some internet searching. Find some other some other Arabic writers who are really interested in this stuff. Go read Rumi. Go read the other mystics. Go read The Ring of the Dove. This is hugely interesting stuff. Um, but again, I only had so much time on my hands. So let's look at what Ibn Sina is saying here. And first off, we while we may not be able to connect Ibn Sina's thoughts on love to the Quran, we can absolutely 100%, no question, tie him directly to Aristotle. Like, this text is so indebted to Aristotle, like, anyone who has read Aristotle, and especially Aristotle's On the Soul, will see the connections plain as day. Like, it was incredibly obvious to me. Um, in part because I did an entire course on Aristotle's On the Soul, so I, like, know it by heart. 
Um, but also just because, like, everything about the way that he is thinking is Aristotelian in its format. So already we know this is absolutely the product of a philosopher doing Arabic philosophy in the tradition inherited from Plato and Aristotle. Like I said, Islam hadn't lost these texts. Islam were very much the caretakers of these texts, where Western Europe had completely forgotten all of Aristotle, where all of the texts were lost, where nobody had access to these books anymore. Islam did. And it's very clear that Ibn Sina is working with Aristotle, that he assumes that not only do, you know, not only is Aristotle available, but, but that like his readers, the people that he's talking to, are very familiar with Aristotelian philosophy. Um, and we should start by saying that, like, even the very beginning here, where he's talking about the power of love pervading all beings, when he starts describing the, the you know, love in inanimate objects, and then love in vegetables, and then love in animals, like, this is the exact same breakdown that Aristotle himself makes in On the Soul. He divides the soul, i.e. the psyche in Greek, the mind as we might call it, um, into the vegetative soul and the animal soul and then the rational or human soul. Um, so it's obvious that, that Avicenna is using this, or yeah, Ibn Sina, Avicenna, sorry, Avicenna is the Latinized version. I will get the two confused frequently. Um, Ibn Sina is definitely taking this as his model, taking this as his framework, his structure, as he's writing this essay. But notice, too, that this is also informed by the Aristotelian ideas of potentiality and actuality. Um, he uses the terms a couple of times in the, in the early chapters, especially here in, in section one on the power of love is pervading all beings. Notice that he starts it by saying, every being which is determined by a design strives by nature toward its perfection. That is, that goodness of reality which ultimately flows from the reality of the pure good, and by nature it shies away from its specific defect, which is the evil in it. That is, materiality and non-being. This is absolutely an Aristotelian understanding of the cosmos, an Aristotelian distinction between this matter and uh, form, potentiality and actuality thing, as well as being this Aristotelian notion of this pure good, this prime mover. Um, we didn't read Aristotle's physics, where a lot of this stuff would have been described in greater detail. Um, so let me give you the Cliff's Notes version. First off, in order to understand what Ibn Sina is doing here, you have to understand the Aristotelian notions of matter and form and potentiality and actuality. Um, for Aristotle, everything that exists, everything, no exceptions, ha is composed of matter and form where matter is the stuff that things are made of, and form is the way that that stuff is organized. Um, importantly for Aristotle, this applies to everything, like everything from an inanimate object. Like if you make a chair, you are taking the wood or the metal or the plastic or whatever, and you are shaping it, you are giving it form in order for it to be a chair. And also importantly for Aristotle, the form is more crucial to the identity, the essence of the object, than the matter is. Matter can be turned into anything. If I want to take my wooden chair and chop it into pieces and then turn it into, I don't know, a desk or a piano or, you know, just a firewood for burning in my, in my fireplace, you know, whatever I do with that matter does not actually change, you know, 
the objects at, at, at stake here. It's when you change the form that everything becomes important. Uh, chopping up the chair into pieces destroys the form, but the matter persists. Likewise, if you changed your chair to be made of plastic, or to be made of iron, or to be made of metal, or wood, or styrofoam, it wouldn't matter because the form is what matters. It is still a chair no matter what it is made of. Um, so again, for Aristotle and for Ibn Sina by extension, the form is more significant. It is nobler in a sense. Um, and this gets especially hairy when Aristotle starts talking about like human sexuality, and he's like, well, the woman provides the matter, but the man, through his seed, provides the form, which gets into this whole misogynistic thing that we definitely don't have the time to talk about here. But it is hanging around the periphery in Ibn Sina. Um, you can see that he agrees with Aristotle in his understanding of matter and form, that matter is just the raw material that stuff is made of, form is what gives that stuff meaning, purpose, direction, design, as he says here. Um, this too is significant, though. This is what brings us to the discussion of potentiality and actuality. For Aristotle, all things also exist in this sort of hybrid state of actuality and potentiality. Potential is what a thing could be. A high thing could be a low thing, a small thing could be a big thing, a good thing could be a better thing, or it could be a worse thing. Like, all of this is potential. Actuality is actually a term that is coined by Aristotle. He makes it up, like, when he is writing his, his, uh, his various texts on the subject. Um, this is entelecheia in the Greek, which basically means purposedness. Um, actuality is doing what one is supposed to do. It is being what one is meant to be. It is both active and passive, in a sense. When you are experiencing actuality, when you are what you are supposed to be, you are doing something that comes so naturally to you that you don't even think of doing it. Like, rocks are actually rocks. By which I mean, you know, they're not like... Yes, of course, a rock is a rock, but, like, a rock is busy being a rock, and that is its actuality. Like, yes, it doesn't look like it's doing anything. It looks like it's just sitting there, you know, as a rock. Like, it, you wouldn't normally think that the rock, quote, rocks, in the sense of, like, some verb form of its own being. But for Aristotle, this is exactly what's happening. The rock does rock. Like, it goes about rocking. Um, just as an animal goes about animaling, or a person goes about personing, in some sense. Actuality is an active thing that, that you are doing, that fulfills your potentiality. It is you being you, in a sense. Um, so notice that what Ibn Sina says here is very much an offshoot of this Aristotelian notion. While, you know, like, in the Aristotelian sense, you are potentially something greater than you are, you were also usually actually what you are at that moment. So to put it in a light that we understand, because we did in fact discuss the Nicomachean Ethics, and as much as we did not talk about, like, the early chapters of the Nicomachean Ethics, the, what Aristotle is saying there about personal excellence, about personal happiness, is very much couched in this discussion of potentiality and actuality. A person, a human being, 
desires happiness, desires that eudaimonia, that excellence, and one is potentially happy, one is potentially excellent. It is sort of latent in our nature that we want to be in a certain way. Happiness, then, eudaimonia, personal excellence, however you want to call it, is the actualization of that potential. You are who you are, but you could be an excellent form of who you are. You could perfect yourself. And the business of going from your potential perfection to your actual perfection is what this whole business of training oneself in virtue is all about. It's why we have friends. It's why we make habits of virtue. It's why we practice courage or temperance or whatever other virtues we need to practice. This is what Aristotle is describing in the Nicomachean Ethics. How do you go from being a potentially good person, in the sense of the best kind of person you can be, to an actually good person, i.e. the best version of yourself? And notice that Ibn Sina picks up on this. He is saying that it is naturally built into every being that exists to become the best version of itself. Everything wants to reach happiness, or whatever happiness looks like for that thing. And that is not just people, that is rocks, and plants, and animals, rational or otherwise. Everything for Ibn Sina is striving towards that perfect version of itself. The rock wants to be the best rock it can be. The tree wants to be the best tree it can be. The dog wants to be the best dog it can be. And the human wants to be the best version of itself. All of this is always happening. But importantly for Ibn Sina, this is love. Love is bound up in the idea of desire. And desire for Ibn Sina is just that movement from potentiality to actuality. So any time that something is striving towards being actual, going from that potentiality to that actuality, what we are essentially talking about here is, at least as Ibn Sina is concerned, love. Like he makes this very explicit. Um, right at the end of that of the broken up paragraph on the top of the second page, page 213 on the handout, um, he writes, uh, the effect is that he, note that he is sort of beating around the bush, that like the Aristotelian prime mover is going to be identified with, you know, the, the Islamic god, Allah, um, though we'll get to that. Um, the effect is that he thus indirectly preserves the perfections which he gave by emanation, and that he thus expresses his desire to bring them into being when they are absent, the purpose being that the administration of the universe should run according to a wise order. In short, God, the prime mover, Allah, bestows meaning, purpose, on everything that exists in the hope that it will reach that being that is, that is intended for it. The administration of the universe runs according to a wise order. There is a good organization that all things are trying to reach. But notice how he clarifies it. The never-ceasing existence of this love in all beings determined by a design is, therefore, a necessity. If this were not so, another love would be necessary to preserve this general love in its existence, to guard against its non-being, and to retrieve it when it is lapsed, anxious lest it might disappear. But one of these two loves would be superfluous, and the existence of something superfluous in nature, which is divinely established, is impossible. Therefore, 
There is no principle of love other than this absolute and general love. And we can conclude that the existence of every being determined by a design is invariably accompanied by inborn love. In short, everything in the universe has a purpose, has a design, is here for a reason. Whether it is inanimate objects like rocks or, you know, buildings or paper cutters or scissors, all of these things are designed by the people who created them, whether it's God making the tree or us making the pair of scissors and beyond. Plants have a design and therefore a purpose. Animals have a design and therefore a purpose. And humans too, in being designed by God, by Allah, they are designed and purposed for something. And it is in striving for that purpose, to reach its purpose, to go from potentiality to actuality, to realize what that design is for our lives or our being, that is love. Love is what causes us to seek after these things. Love compels us to follow our design, to reach our purpose, to become actual. Now I should stress, Aristotle definitely has the whole potentiality-actuality discussion. Aristotle would definitely agree with Ibn Sina as he presents it here, but Aristotle probably wouldn't use the term love to describe this force. Aristotle depersonalizes it compared to what Ibn Sina is doing here. Maybe that's a language thing, maybe Arabic, like the attraction that Aristotle would usually talk about, is rendered as love in this situation. I don't know. Whatever the reason, Ibn Sina conflates these ideas, the idea of the human attraction as well as the natural attraction that leads all things to fulfill their purpose in the Aristotelian sense. I don't know how much of this is his agenda, how much of this is a translation thing, how much he's riffing on other philosophers. Again, this is as early as I went back, bummer though that is. So we're just going to have to like take Ibn Sina at face value and see this as what he is observing, what he understands Aristotle and the truth of the matter to be. Um, but we're not done yet. So importantly, we have a couple of things that we need to observe about what's going on here. For one thing, Ibn Sina absolutely accepts Aristotle's axiom that all things are made to a purpose, and all of those things are attempting to achieve that purpose. They're all striving toward that purpose. Ibn Sina also characterizes this striving as love. And importantly, because this is something that everything is doing, because it is in this general sense just striving after perfection, Ibn Sina is stressing that literally everything loves. Inanimate objects love, plants love, animals love. Love is all around us. It is constant. It is omnipresent. And I want to stress this because this is a new idea. Like, Plato has kicked this around a little bit in the symposium. Like, there are a couple places where it seems like that's the direction that he's going, although not many people pick up on it after this. Like, Neoplatonism, as much as love is this central idea that does bind everything together and is super important and is very much co-opted by the Christians, this is not the way that it is usually framed. Um, what Ibn Sina is doing here is making love out to be this foundational primordial force in the same sense that, you know, Plato was poking at it when he's talking to Hesiod. Um, and he is sort of developing this idea, making it bigger, connecting it to his faith, you'll notice, because again, it is the pure good, it is the first mover, it is this Aristotelian notion of a prime mover paired with 
the Quran's view of God, Allah, the creator, the, the maker of things, the provider. Um, once again, we have this religious and philosophical marriage bringing about this idea. But what I really want to stress here is that while, you know, you've got Augustine and the Western Christian tradition sort of getting a little bit careful about love, like recognizing there is some kind of fundamental distinction between the charity love described in the New Testament, which is in fact super important and is connected to God as this personal identity, there is also a recognition that love as an attraction between human beings is something separate from that. And in fact, the Christians would very much stress, and frequently do, that the physical world, the love that would be described by the attraction between inanimate objects or the attraction between animals, that's bad news. And it is not the same as the divine love offered, the agape that is, you know, God himself, as John 1 puts it. This is a distinction for the Christians. And it is something that Ibn Sina is conflating. Either because he doesn't know there's a distinction to be had, because again, he's not coming from the Christian tradition here, or because he's making an intentional move. He's deliberately putting these things back together after the Christians have very much torn it apart. Um, whatever the cause is, that's the emphasis that I want to place here. The Christians have gradually been saying that the love of God and the love of the world are two radically different things. They're not the same. And in fact, you know, there's Augustine saying, you know, yes, God is love, but God is only love in certain circumstances. God is not sexual love at all. Anyone who is attracted is not, you know, godly at all, he, he stresses, whether correctly or incorrectly, based on what the New Testament is suggesting. Ibn Sina is very much swerving the other direction there. He is very much stressing that God and the love of God as it is visible in nature is the same as human love, the same as, you know, the copulative love, erotic love. It is all one love here. And again, I don't know how much of that is language. I definitely don't know any Arabic. Like, as much as I can appreciate the differences and nuances in the Greek and even the Latin in some degree, I got nothing on Arabic. So I don't know if there was only the one word and therefore he's using it for everything. I don't know. At any rate, this is what we end up with. Now, the third thing that I do definitely want to stress is this business of God. Um, he stresses on multiple occasions that, again, it is this designer who bestows this design on things, and therefore sort of like kicks it into motion, makes it want to do things, makes it want to achieve its own perfection, and in short, gives it love to possess and to have and to sort of act upon. This is also very Aristotelian. Aristotle very much emphasizes in the metaphysics that there is this prime mover, this unmoved mover that set the universe into motion, because Aristotle fairly logically observes that all things that move are moved by something else, but this could not be an infinite regress, therefore there must be some being that is an unmoved mover, that set the universe in motion, but somehow manages to move under their own steam, without anything actually putting it into motion. This very much gets conflated with the idea of God in a lot of traditions. Like in the Neoplatonic tradition, it is very much the prime mover paired with 
Plato's idea of the of the demiurge, this you know initial creator that itself gets identified with the more Gnostic idea of God as creator, or even the Christian notion of God as creator. Um, this is not new ground, but Ibn Sina is applying it to the Islamic tradition, to the Muslim tradition, likely because he is assuming it, because probably there are other scholars who's done it before him. But there is one thing that I do really want to stress here. Whether or not it's Ibn Sina's creation or somebody else's creation, it is going to be an idea that is reflected in the Christian tradition, even at this point in time, like in the works of Boethius, but also it's something that Aquinas especially is going to draw on and really emphasize. And it is really important to what we're talking about here. We need to talk about the idea of divine simplicity. We need to talk about the fact that Ibn Sina identifies the prime mover, the being that set all activity into motion with the, the idea of pure goodness in the person of God, in the person of Allah. Now, this is a kind of weird and very typically medieval idea. It's really important to how the medievals understand their notion of God as both the creator of the religious texts, whether it's the Quran or the Bible or even just the Old Testament, in the case of Moses Maimonides, um, versus the philosophical God, the one who fills all of the spaces identified by Aristotle and by Plato, the the being who needs to be there in order for the world to work the way that it does. All of these scholars unite this. It's too obvious to pass up on. The Neoplatonists were very clearly identifying like the Demiurge or the Prime Mover as a personal god in some sense, even if that god is more pantheistic in, in a sense. Um, here, Ibn Sina is stressing not the you know god as like being all things or having zero qualities or being completely simple. Instead, he emphasizes God's role as both creator on the one hand, the philosophical God, and the God of love. Um, so you'll notice in that last section, the love of the divine souls, chapter 6, before the conclusion, he emphasizes that God as the first cause is also the pure good. These are two different concepts that he's been kicking around during this whole text, and it's kind of hard not to see them as both the same dude. Like, again, because our culture has trained us to see, you know, anytime that you put that many capital letters together, you're probably talking about the one and only God. And since Islam has a one and only God hanging around, it would make sense that that's the one that they're referring to here. But notice that this is an important moment in the text here. Um, during the love of divine souls, he's describing, like, all right, so let's talk about how love works for humans towards God or angelic souls or whatever. Um, but, and he identifies this as, you know, they have to know and relate to the absolute good. If, in fact, there is this drive, this love that sort of compels people to seek their own perfection, that love must take the form of becoming greater than themselves. And obviously, if that love is directed at a most perfect being, at an end point that, the, that everyone is trying to aspire to, that end point would logically be the perfect good, the most perfect being, the ideal being of all beings. Everything that is trying to better itself is trying to better itself by becoming closer to the perfect version of itself, the perfect goodness. And finally, he identifies in the first full paragraph on page 223 of the handout 
The first cause is identical with the pure good, which is absolute in its essence. And he proceeds to prove it, as the medievals often will. I'm not going to get into the details of the proof. What I need to stress here is that this solves a whole bunch of problems for both philosophers and theologians, insofar as by making the absolute perfect good into the first cause, you can successfully reconcile not just secular philosophy with your religious teaching, but it also solves a lot of problems that would come up in either one of those spheres. Um, specifically, there's this famous problem called the Euthyphro problem, which is famous and called that because it comes from Plato's Euthyphro. Surprise, surprise. And in the Euthyphro, Plato points out that if God and the ultimate good are two different things, then at the end of the day, you're going to have a major conflict there. Either you are searching after the ultimate good and God is just pointing you to it, in which case God is kind of useless and you can do without him, or God precedes the ultimate good and therefore the ultimate good isn't as ultimate as you thought it was. Um, and therefore you're kind of going to look to God, who apparently is changeable and dangerous and may not be all that good in the first place. By conflating these two ideas, by making God the standard of goodness, this problem is solved, and Ibn Sina points that out. But he also points out that as an object of love, God is simultaneously the subject of love and the object of love. God, by loving, and again I'm using God here, but I'm referring to the Islamic notion of Allah, again, I definitely don't want to talk about the possibilities that, like, they're the same being. Like, that's a theological snarl at the best of times. Suffice it to say that Islam does take the Old Testament as one of its major sources, and they identify their God with the God of Abraham. But Christians and Jews reject the truth, the teachings of Islam, and therefore you can't very well comfortably say, yes, Islam and Christianity abide by or follow the same God. Like, no, they have radically different understandings of who that God actually is. Um, like, Christianity thinks that God is in three persons, and Islam would say that that is heresy, and Judaism would say that that is heresy. So, is it the same God? I don't know. Like, historically, the one certainly drives from the other, but, you know, if there is, in fact, a God, and all three religions are pointing to it in some capacity, yes, it is all the same God. But that assumes that there is one God and they're all pointing to it, in which case, two of those religions are wrong about the nature of God, in which case... It's not the same God, and now we're in this whole theological snarl again. So let's just sideline that discussion here. I will refer to the Islamic Allah as God just because it's roughly the same placeholder. Like I'm using the word to describe the space rather than the being who occupies it, I guess. It's messy. But suffice it to say, Ibn Sina identifies God, Allah, as both the maker of love and the, the proper recipient of love. He is both the subject and the object of true love. The first cause loves by giving people their purpose, by giving people their direction, their design, by giving them that quality that causes them to strive for their own self-perfection, but he also is the self-perfection that all of these things are striving for. As Augustine puts it in his first chapter of the Confessions, again conflating the two religions, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We seek God, naturally. The Christians think this, the Muslims think this. Ibn Sina is very explicitly saying that here. 
And whether this is an innovation or something that is widely understood, I do not know. But it is significant to notice that this is the case. There, the god that Ibn Sina is describing here is the god of the philosophers and the god of Islam. They're the same being. This god loves and is loved. And he is even fairly strongly suggesting whether it is explicit or not, it certainly seems to be suggesting that God is love in that same sense as the Christians tend to talk about it. Um, so notice on page 224, um, this direction, this direction of love, um, is pointed towards God all the time, and is pointed towards this God as the absolute good, and therefore, because we all strive towards it, we all love God. That is exactly what that striving is supposed to be. Um, since God is also the being that gave us that love in the first place, we are basically insinuating that God is the engineer, the creator of love, and that this love is identical with the first cause, the pure good. This is all one being, one simply constructed being. Now, I should stress that at no point does he say God is love in the same way that the Christians put it. I don't know if he is influenced by the Christian idea here. Again, my knowledge is really limited. But it seems to be really straightforwardly put in this text that God is identical with this love that all things feel towards him. Um, notice, again, on page 214, right above the, the break for, for section 2, notice the, full, the second to last paragraph there. If this is established, then let us proceed to say this, that being which is too exalted to be subject to the governance must be the highest object of love because it must be the maximum in goodness. And the highest subject of love is identical with the highest object of love, namely its high and sublime essence. Because the good loves the good through that attainment and penetration whereby it is connected with it, and because the first good penetrates itself in eternal actuality, i.e. this first prime mover, this subject of love and object of love, loves itself, both as subject and object, therefore its love for itself is the most perfect and complete. And because there is no distinction among the divine qualities of its essence, again, divine simplicity, all qualities boil down to one, love is here the essence and the being, purely and simply. That is, in the case of the pure good. He is saying in fairly uncertain, no uncertain terms here, God is love. It is his essence. Um, so, as much as we are inclined to see a lot of deviation between Islam and Christianity here, this theological point, at least as Ibn Sina is talking about it, is consistent between the two. It's part of why Aquinas is so on board for what Ibn Sina has to say about theology and about God. Um, this is a typically medieval idea, whether you're hanging out in Islam or Christianity or Judaism. God is love. God is his characteristics. God is both the maker and the things to which all made things tend. Um, this is who God is from both the combined philosophical and religious or theological standpoint. Now, all this is very fascinating and very highfalutin and extremely abstract and esoteric and probably is the business of many alchemists and like occult followers for many years to come. 
it's not nearly as relevant to us. The takeaway here for our purposes is to note that God is love in Islam as much as it is as he is in Christianity, at least as Ibn Sina is putting it, and to also stress that we are still in the territory where all love is informed by God. Our relationships between human beings, or even between human beings and animals, or between animals and rocks, like, all of these relationships derive from God's relationship to the creation. Just as we talked about in the Old Testament, just as we talked about in the New Testament. It is, once again, an important part of the philosophical and theological discourse here. God is the model, as well as the object now, of all love. And indeed, I suspect Ibn Sina would stress, like he's, he stresses it at the end of, of section 5, that all love is, at the end of the day, directed toward God. It, as much as there may be an intermediary kind of form, that love is still, at the end of the day, God-focused, because that deriving, that striving, that potentiality to actuality move requires us to be in relation to God, requires us to strive toward God. But I also want to talk about the specifics here, because in section 5, Ibn Sina does more than just some Aristotelian philosophy. He is doing some observations of how love works on a sort of ground foundational level. And he comes to some really interesting conclusions here. Stuff that is way out of the pale of what we have been talking about with Christianity thus far. Um, as much as we have seen this idea that like God is love before, as much as we have seen this idea that God is simple in other medieval traditions, as much as we even understand the idea that love is omnipresent in other traditions besides what is here. This is fairly unique. So notice the details of what he's talking about in this section 5 on the love of those who are noble-minded and young for external beauty. Notice that Ibn Sina is actually on board with this. Ibn Sina doesn't have the usual Christian hang-ups about falling in love with earthly things. He lacks Paul's reticence about accepting marriage and stuff like that. And what's more, it gets pretty wildly unchristian at certain points. So notice that, like, he is admittedly talking about, you know, okay, so love is something that everything experiences. Love is something that rocks experience, it's something that vegetables experience, it's something that animals experience. But he emphasizes here in the discussion of, you know, human love, Whenever any of the faculties of the soul is conjoined with another higher in rank, then it enters in a close connection with the latter, and the result of this alliance with such excellence will be an increase in nobility and ornament for the lower faculty. So, to put this more concretely, animals are attracted to each other. They have sex with each other. You will see dogs screwing on the side of the road. Like, this is something that all animals are inclined to, and therefore it is not terribly noble, as Ibn Sina and Aristotle would put it. There's nothing, like, flattering. There's nothing good about wanting to have sex. Everything does it. If animals want it, then it can't be a terribly noble thing for humans to do. In general, since animals are lower on the natural order than humans, anything that humans want to do that animals also want to do are not impressive. But Ibn Sina emphasizes that because rationality is now informing the act that all animals undertake, rationality makes that act greater. It ennobles it. 
The higher faculties ennoble the lower faculties. And this is the foundation of his thoughts on sexuality, or at least human sexuality. And he even says this explicitly later on in this, in this section. Similar is the situation in the case of the human faculty of desire. True, this faculty is one of the causes of corruption, but it is necessary in the general desired order which is good, and it is not part of the divine wisdom to abandon a great good because of the adverse character of an evil which is small in relation to it. Love, sexual desire, then, is good when it is ennobled by reason, when it becomes more than just some animal lust for one another. But he keeps moving on with this. So in his little second point, the fourfold of his fourfold introduction, he says, Many human activities, impressions, and reactions belong to the animal soul alone and by itself i.e. we do a lot of the same things that animals do, including sense perception, imagination, sexual intercourse, and the spirit of aggression and warfare. However, because the animal soul of man acquires some excellence on account of the proximity of the rational soul, it executes these functions in a nobler and a more refined manner. It pursues among the objects of sense those which are of a better constitution and have a sounder composition. Skip a little further down, and you see a further example of this we find where the rational faculty imposes on the appetitive sexual faculty something other than its essential aim and different from pleasure, namely the imitation of the first cause by way of the preservation of the species, and especially the most excellent of them, the human species. I.e., if you are having sex for the purposes of procreation, unlike Augustine, who would say, I hope you are doing it without deriving any pleasure from the experience, Ibn Sina is saying, this is an ennobling of sexual passion. If you are loving for the sake of a rational purpose, be it because you are following the, the example of the first cause, i.e. God, or because you are following your desire to perpetuate the human species, then your sexual desire is more than just an animal thing. It is a specifically human, rational, and noble thing. Um, these are high purposes, he suggests. The love of the world to come and intimacy with the all-merciful. You are one with God when you love another person sexually note again he's making no distinction between this you know foreign christian notion of love as agape or charity and the love of eros as plato describes it for for ibn sina they are one and the same but what's more this is where things get real tricky check that fourth section it's marked with the roman numeral four both the rational and the animal soul the latter by reason of its proximity to the former, invariably love what has beauty of order, composition, and harmony. As, for example, harmonious sounds, harmoniously blended tastes of well-prepared dishes and such like. But whereas in the animal soul this is due to natural instinct, in the case of the rational soul it results from its occupation with the conception of the ideas which are higher than nature. It recognizes that the closer a thing is to the first object of love, namely God, the more steadfast is it in its order, and the more beautiful in its harmony, and that what follows it immediately attains a greater degree of unity and of such qualities as result therefrom, namely harmony and agreement, whereas on the contrary, the more remote a thing is from it, the nearer it is to multiplicity and such characters as follow it, namely contrast and disharmony. Skip down to the next paragraph, and he'll say it straight out, 
After having established these premises, we can now make the statement that it is a part of the nature of beings endowed with reason to covet a beautiful sight, and that this is sometimes, certain conditions granted, to be considered as refinement and nobility. So if, in fact, it is true that, yes, the human faculties like reason ennoble the lower faculties like appetite or sexual desire, and if, in fact, the reason can aspire to godliness in the exercise of these appetitive desires, in the exercise of one's sexual desire, then it is therefore the case that one is ennobled by one's sexuality. One becomes closer in harmony to God by loving sexually other people, other beings, when they show that harmony of character, that goodness of form, that beauty that we admire. So what Ibn Sina is essentially saying here is we are made better by our love. In the same way that Plato was suggesting it back in the symposium, when he's saying that like Diotima, we are searching for beauty and therefore we are advancing closer to beauty in doing this, we are now taking the capital B beauty, the ideal form, and putting it on God himself as a sort of natural consequence of attributing Platonic philosophy to this religious context. Which means that Ibn Sina is not upset about sex. He is not apologizing for it. He does not denigrate it. He does not consider it low or gross or base the way that the Stoics do and the inheritors of Stoicism like Augustine do. He is absolutely Stoicism-free here, following Aristotelian philosophy where it leads without the bias of seeing love as being essentially indulgent or womanly or weak in some way. By contrast, if you follow to the next paragraph, he says, This is obvious also from another angle. If a man loves a beautiful form with animal desire, he deserves reproof, even condemnation and the charge of sin, as, for instance, those who commit unnatural adultery, and in general, people who go astray. So yes, lust for lust's sake is still condemned. Love as purely sexual desire is still condemned. But, he continues, Whenever he loves a pleasing form with an intellectual consideration in the manner we have explained, then this is to be considered as an approximation to nobility and an increase in goodness. If you love, not out of pure animal instinct, but instead out of rationally considered appreciation for the beautiful, whether sexually beautiful or otherwise, that makes you a better person. That ennobles you, brings you closer to God. And he even quotes the Quran on this one. Therefore the prophet says, Seek ye satisfaction of your needs in those of beautiful countenance, the plain meaning of which is that beauty of form is to be found only where there is a good natural composition. And therefore prescribing, go hang out with, go be attracted, go fall for beautiful people. Now, part of this is because and Ibn Sina, like the ancient Greeks before him, believed that beautiful people can only be beautiful if they're also beautiful on the inside. Virtue is accompanied by beauty, or rather, beauty is accompanied by virtue. And while he describes that there are a couple of exceptions to this, in the large part, he does not see a difference between physical beauty and spiritual beauty, which is, again, something that the Christians would disagree with. 
Remember, the Christians are all about their suspicion of things that look attractive. The flesh is opposed to the spirit. The world is opposed to heaven. The city of God is opposed to the city of human beings. But Ibn Sina doesn't have that in his formula. He doesn't see that logic because he is still straight from the Greeks with none of that Augustinian Stoic nonsense hanging around in between. So, he concludes that love is blameless and in fact brings you closer to God, the one that you are striving for. So he concludes, and notice the details here, like even before we get to the conclusion, the first full paragraph on page 222, he stresses that like love itself strives for one of three things. This is on page 221, the last final paragraph, or Final full paragraph there. Three things follow from the love of a beautiful human form. One, the urge to embrace it. Two, the urge to kiss it. And three, the urge for conjugal union with it. Now, I don't know why it's just these particular three things. Like, I don't know, I like to talk to people who look attractive to me, but that's just me. At any rate, Ibn Sina is going to talk about these three specific things, and he's going to emphasize if what you want is conjugal union, that is bad. You shouldn't just want to hang out with people for the purposes of having sex with them. And he, in fact, emphasizes, it is only permissible and may only find approval in the case of a man with either his wife or female slave. Which, I don't know why he's tolerating female slaves in this situation. That seems like it would be outside the purview, but whatever, not questioning it. What I do want to stress is the next paragraph. As for embracing and kissing, the purpose in them is to come near to one another and to become united. The soul of the lover desires to reach the object of his love with his senses of touch and sight, and thus he delights in embracing it, and he longs to have the very essence of his soul faculty, his heart, mingle with that of the object of his love, and thus he desires to kiss it. These actions, then, are not in themselves blameworthy. However, feelings and actions of excessive lust happen to follow them frequently, and this makes it necessary that one should be on guard against them, except that the complete absence of physical appetite and immunity even from suspicion is beyond doubt. He goes on to conclude, whoever is filled with this type of love, i.e. the love that seeks to embrace and the love that seeks to kiss, is a man of nobility and refinement, and this type of love is an ornament and a source of inner wealth. You are a better person for wanting that kind of spiritual union. Not the sexual kind, he's specifying. If you just want the sex, then that makes you like an animal and therefore bad. But if you want to embrace, if you want to kiss, if you want to be one with a beautiful form, that is a sign of good breeding, nobility, and closeness to God. It is a holy act, in short. And it is no wonder, then, that Capilanus and the rest of the Western European tradition see this and run with it. This is absolutely the answer they needed to that restrictive medieval attitude towards sex, sex, beauty, and sexuality. That very strict division between the worldly goods and the spiritual goods. Up until now, medieval philosophy has very much rejected the union of these two things. Ibn Sina finds a way, because he is coming from a completely different tradition, to unite them. And when people read texts like this, when people see Islam practicing love in this way, they get excited about it, and they want to bring it back to the West. 
But obviously, because the West is hostile to these ideas, the Western European purview is very much grounded in this Augustinian, Stoic-slash-Christian attitude, it's going to meet with resistance. So let's look at the way that Andreas Capellanus talks about it in our textbook, in, in his discussion of On Love. And we can see the same sort of characteristics that we see throughout the Arthurian legends, throughout all of these sort of courtly love romances. Like if you read Gowan and the Green, Green Knight, or if you read, read the uh, Romance of the Rose, like there's a whole bunch of books that describe this particular relationship. But notice that it almost beat for beat follows what Ibn Sina has described here. Andreas Capellanus is talking about a relationship between lovers, but one that is not necessarily consummated by sexual union. Sometimes it is. And he seems to be fairly ambiguous about this. Like, towards the end, he seems to suggest that it is, it is specifically sexual in nature. But if anything, the important detail here is the one that is emphasized in the video, that most versions of courtly love are naturally unrequited and unrequitable. Whether or not it terminates in, sexual, in actual sexual intercourse is kind of indifferent to the issue. Um, obviously, adultery is not being 100% suggested here, but at the same time, it isn't necessarily out of the realm of possibility. It is not condemned by the troubadours, not condemned by these writers about courtly love. Where Ibn Sina very much draws a clear-cut line in the sand, kissing, okay, embracing, okay, sex, not okay. The courtly love tradition seems to think that that's less important as far as the lines being drawn here. Instead, they take all the philosophy underlying it without the specific restrictions that are obviously motivated by this quasi-Aristotelian, quasi-religious context, where Ibn Sina is saying love elevates a person, the desire to be with a person elevates a person, the desire to embrace and to become one with a person elevates a person. Well, naturally the Christians, with their long traditions of, you know, conjugal union, one flesh, embracing, and so on and so forth, are going to kind of not worry so much about that little distinction. So here we have Andreas Capellanus stressing not the element of sexuality itself. Like, that's kind of a footnote. You're, again, not even sure he's talking about it when he talks about, like, how to keep love going after it has been consummated. Like, it's not even clear what he means by consummated there. But what he is emphasizing is the attraction. And this is very much what the courtly love tradition has always emphasized and what they will emphasize over and over and over again. Even if there is some question about whether Lancelot is decent or not for trying to seduce Guinevere, even if it's unclear whether Gawain is supposed to be hanging out with these women who are married to other people, it's not clear, but what is clear is the chase is fine. Whether or not adultery is fine is another matter entirely, but the chase is good. Beautiful women are beautiful in order to be appreciated by men. That's the way it is framed here. Now we should stress a couple of things about the whole courtly love tradition. Like you'll remember from the video that, the, that Red broke it down into like four characteristics, one of which was definitely like women become basically goddesses and are practically worshipped by the ones who love them. This is true, and it's also kind of weird. Like I don't want to, you know, 
as much as we have been seeing a lot of misogyny over the course of this class, and a lot of misogyny that is really obvious and really kind of blatantly wrong, this one can get a little weirdish because on the one hand it's like well they revere women and women are like the champions of courtly love they have all the power in this situation and therefore it's not misogyny right well no like obviously they are being appreciated as objects and less so as subjects like as much as andreas capellanus makes a couple of comments here that like P.S. This is totally what women will also do, and they can also be lovers and, you know, admire their beloved. It's just not the same. Like, almost every single version of courtly love that you will see in the Arthurian romances or elsewhere typically places the man as the lover and the woman as the beloved. They are essentially objects at the end of the day, and it is much, much more interested in, you know, be courageous, be heroic, fight nobly, always love your woman, always, you know, be devoted to your woman, but never betray her and never, you know, never cheat on her, never actually, like, commit the act if she is married to someone else. Like, all of this is very much directions directed at the men in the relationship as the women are sort of like unwitting participants in what's going on. There are occasions where the woman is the active lover in certain situations, but usually in those cases they're also framed as demons or temptresses or potentially just sluts. Like, this is not necessarily a huge move forward for the position of women in society, but it is a move. And I do want to stress that. It is changing. And the art of courtly love here does put women in a considerably more powerful position than many of the misogynistic systems beforehand. This suggests that a man should subservient himself to a woman, that he should serve her, that he should put himself on a lower position, that he should like wait on her every desire, on her every move. Uh, part of this is because of other medieval tra traditions, like we didn't get to talk about Heloise and Abelard, which is a bit of a bummer, because that's a kind of super important, like, model for a lot of the medieval traditions, including a lot of the medieval courtly love traditions. Um, but, again, we didn't get to do that. Um, suffice it to say, for our purposes, that as much as this is a big step for women. It's not necessarily a huge step forward, and it's going to very much backfire and have its fair amount of problems as well. Um, we'll talk about that when we get to Mary Wollstonecraft, because she quite neatly handles the situation there. But what we need to stress for our purposes here is how Andreas Capellanus talks about love, how he presents it. Now notice that this whole discussion of love is presented as love, not lust. Like, Andreas Capellanus is not trying to describe just physical attraction here. He calls this love. This is the same idea that Ibn Sina is kicking around, and to some degree it's probably the same language that would have been used to describe the Christian act of charity, or this agape love, insofar as it's still an idea separated from love, generally speaking, which at this point it probably isn't, because there hasn't been a Greek speaker hanging around Western Europe in a long, long time at this point. All those scholars are writing in Latin these days for because they are the inheritors of the Latin Roman, Roman Catholic tradition, and Tertullian was, of course, the first great Latin theologian, and Augustine wrote in Latin, and everybody writes in Latin. It's a thing. All those monasteries, all those monks, Latin, Latin, Latin. Priests, Latin. Pope, Latin. All Latin. All the conversations are Latin. Um, 
the languages have in fact migrated, like nobody's actually spoken Latin on the ground level in a long time, but Latin is the scholarly language at this point. So in all likelihood, the only word we've got is amor here, or amore, or however you want to pronounce it, the Latin word for love, with no real delineation between like eros versus philia versus agape the way that it was in the Greek. Um, there is, in fact, different Latin words for love and friendship, amor versus amicita, as we saw with Cicero, but even then, like, that just means that the original Christian notion of love is very much mixed up with the erotic notion of love here. And Andreas Capellanus is very much talking about the erotic notion of love. But notice, too, that he is very much Christianizing it. When he is talking about on love, he is not talking about on sex. Like, sex is not something that he is willing to discuss explicitly in this text, but what's more, the relationship between the people who are in love is not defined by their ability to have sex. This is not like Ovid, where Ovid is talking about like the best ways to you know corrupt a maidservant in order to turn you onto her side so you can like work out assignations between the two of you. Like if anything, Andreas Capellanus is, is telling people to stay the hell away from each other, which is weird. Like, in his, his emphasis, like, how do you increase love, he is stressing having difficulty seeing each other will just increase the feeling of love. And that's the key here. Capellanus is not interested in the act of physical love. He is interested in the act of mental love. Sort of training oneself to constantly think about love, to constantly practice love, to constantly be aware of love, to practice love not in the sense of like doing stuff, kissing people, or, or having sex, or, or seeking embraces, or anything like that, but instead as this elaborate game that is going on between the lover and the beloved, and whoever else may be involved, because in all likelihood that beloved may very well be the wife of some other dude. Capellanus doesn't have a problem with this, except insofar as he has a whole problem with the whole other, with the whole thing, and that's just, I don't even know what's going on there. We'll talk about that, hopefully, time permitting. Suffice it to say that he's not interested in, you know, are you able to successfully get into her bedroom in order to, you know, successfully seal the deal? No, love for Andreas Capellanus is a chess game. It is a series of carefully hidden looks and carefully disguising your language in public, sighing for one another behind closed doors and never betraying to anyone that in fact you are in love with this other person. It is about composure and about like always being chivalrous and good and witty when you are in the company of the other person, but never letting it show to everyone else around you that you are in fact in love. Remember, one of the things that he most significantly emphasizes is you do not want to be discovered. If you are discovered, love is going to dry up like that. It's the game that makes love work. It's the game, the, the elaborate like actions that you have to take to hide what's going on that makes you pine for one another so much. And that's the goal, weirdly enough. The pining. The pining is what you are aspiring for. Like, I want you to sort of think about this for a moment, because it is so very much against modern thinking here. 
that feeling you have when there's somebody who you like and you're too afraid to tell them that you like them, when you're sort of like staying up late at night just thinking about them and you just feel uncomfortable and you, you just want you want to scream because you just need somebody to know that this is the case. You can't just abide in this limbo forever. This is exactly what Andreas Capellanus is prescribing. As far as he is concerned, this is the best it gets. If you're going to be in love, this is what you want to happen. It is all about those sleepless nights. It is all about that carefully guarding your speech to not let on that you were, like, hanging on to this person's every word. It is all about the game of acting cool rather than letting them know how you feel about each other. But at the same time, it's worse than this, because both of you at this point should know this. You both feel this way towards each other. Sometime in some secret room somewhere, in some one-on-one -on -one conversation you had, you probably professed it. You probably said, I love you more than life itself. And they said, I love you more than life itself. You reciprocated it. Maybe you even embraced. Maybe you even kissed, the way that Ibn Sina talks about. Maybe you even did the deed, if you had the time or opportunity to do it. But what's important is not, are you going to do it again? What's important is how are you going to compose yourself in public? How are you going to stoke the fire of your passion for one another by exchanging these careful glances, by occasionally making these veiled references to how one feels about one another in a way that cannot be interpreted by anybody else listening in? How are you going to dress yourself? How are you going to behave yourself? How are you going to fight in a tournament or sit in the stands? How are you going to make every part of your day about that other person without betraying that to anyone else around you? That's the goal here. Love is a shadow game in this courtly love tradition. And yes, there are physical acts. Again, I don't want to de-emphasize them, but absolutely the cornerstone of the courtly love tradition is the game. The fact that it is a constant battle of wits, a constant disguising and secreting of your intentions. And Capellana stresses this. You want to increase the passion. You want to burn all the more voraciously with your love for the other person. You just want to make it more and more and more and more intense. Like You look at the rules. Notice the first two. Marriage is no real excuse for not loving. So we are clearly outside the bounds of, you know, Christian love as far as we're concerned here, seeing as, you know, this is the most forbidden kind of love, and yet Andreas Capellanus is saying there is no reason not to love a married woman, because essentially, at the end of the day, this isn't about love in the sense of, like, conjugal relationships. This is love in Ibn Sina's sense, wanting union with another person. And marriage has nothing to do with this. It is a completely independent institution. The love that we're talking about here is something close to the godly love, agape love, loving your neighbor love. It is something close to what Ibn Sina is describing as this admiration for another person, this want to appreciate beauty and to use that to sort of elevate and ennoble you. It is something close to that, but it is nothing like what marriage is about, where marriage is, again, reduced to this purely social, economic, political thing that people do in order to guarantee alliances in order to protect themselves in the future. Not the same animal, not the same thing. But notice rule two. He who is not jealous cannot love. 
the restriction, the fact that you cannot own this person, is the driving force here. See, in marriage, it's all said and done, at least in theory. Like, as Paul describes it, you possess the other person's body. Like, for both men and women, they possess you, you possess them. That's how it works. Like, you are to give each other freely. There is no shame here. There is no con contempt here. Everything is good in the eyes of God. Use each other the way that you want. Fulfill your desires that way, because that is the way that God has set out for you, those desires to be fulfilled. But what Andreas Capellanus is saying, no, it's the desire that is important. Just in the exact same and opposite way to what Augustine was saying, where the desire is exactly what is sinful, the desire is exactly what is wrong, you should have sex to procreate, that's it. If you love each other, you're doing it wrong. Andreas Capellanus is saying, love without sex is the perfect form of love. Desire without the ability to make it fulfilled is exactly what the goal is here. Lancelot is doomed when he falls in love with Guinevere. That's how you know it's really love, as far as these writers are concerned. The love has to be forbidden. It has to be jealous. It has to be unrequited. It cannot ever be safe. Safety kills love. And he stresses that. If you see each other too often, you will fall out of love. If you, you know, are hanging around each other all the time, you will fall out of love. If you are cordial, if you are informal with each other, if you say whatever silly thing comes into your mind to each other, that kills love. To keep up love, keep each other separate. Go away for long periods of time. Get distance between the two of you. Just think about her all the time. Obsess over her. That's the goal here. That's the mark of true love as far as Capellanus is concerned. And if this strikes you as weird or wrong, yeah, it is, again, totally out of sync with the way that we understand love today. Totally, 100%, probably more than any other single discussion we're going to have about love in this class, this one is the most alien to us. But it is also one of the most powerful, and it is also, weirdly enough, one of the things that informs us most about the way that love works. Because notice, this is also really different from everything that has come before. Plato didn't talk about the desire the way that Andreas Capellanus talks about the desire. The Christians certainly don't, whether we're talking about New Testament Christianity or Augustine's Stoicism Christianity mashup. In all of these cases, desire is an act of weakness. It is something that sort of depreciates you. It makes you less independent. But Andreas Capellanus is saying no. Make yourself small. Make yourself weak. Be humble before your lover, and it will make you into a better person as a consequence. Make your beloved your God, physically and not spiritually, and that will turn you into a spiritual champion, a spiritual hero, a better person. That is very much even a move away from Ibn Sina, but you can see the way that it tracks. If you take out all of that Christian hand-wringing about sexuality and celibacy that we talked about in our last discussion, culminating in the ideas of Augustine, and instead just draw a direct line from the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle through the teachings of 
even the New Testament to some degree, through the teachings of Islam, what you reach is what Ibn Sina is talking about. Love as something ennobling, something that makes us better, that brings us closer to God. And without that disconnect between the sexual love and the agape charity love, you end up with Andreas Capellanus. Love is love. Practice it, and you will become a better person. Obsess over this person, it will make you nobler. Wish, and not ever, without ever having any hope of it actually coming to pass, and you will be perfected. Now, I should mention, Capellanus ultimately does, like, at the end of this passage, turn it all on its head and argue, and if you are, in fact, doing this, it is actually bad, and you probably shouldn't be doing this, and I don't know why I gave you all of these extremely explicit rules and instructions about how to do things, besides the fact that he ultimately concludes that, like, it is more impressive to overcome sin when you know how to do it right, like, seriously, look at that line on page 69. For God is more pleased with a man who is able to sin and does not than with a man who has no opportunity to sin. Yeah, I don't know what his motivations are here. People have been sort of, like, dissecting this one for a long while. It certainly seems that Capellanus is very much in love with love, as he's talking about it here. But insofar as he is then turning around and saying, NPS, this is all bad for you because it's going to make you poor, it's going to make you obsessed with women, and it's going to, like, bring you farther away from God, I don't know. No idea. Good luck to you trying to interpret exactly what's going on there. Methinks the man doth protest too much is basically as close to an answer as I've got for you. Chances are he really does appreciate the whole courtly love business, but knows full well that he can't very well support it. That it is out of sync with Christian teaching. But this is the madness of this particular moment in history, this particular attitude toward love. It admittedly is not Christian. It is probably way more rooted in Islam, like we talked about it. But it is incredibly compelling to the Christian worldview, if only because there is no outlet for that outside of this courtly love tradition. That's probably why it catches on as badly as it does, why all of these nobles are suddenly practicing this courtly love tradition. It is compelling, but it is also passionate in a way that passion has not been allowable for a very long time in, in medieval culture. So keep this in mind, because it is absolutely going to be one of the key components in the way that the moderns understand love, and you will see this bad boy come back with vengeance when Dante starts writing about Beatrice. For next time, though, we are going to turn our attention to the most scholarly and most stoic of all of the medieval philosophers, Thomas Aquinas, who is enormously important and also kind of just enormous, period. He is one of my all-time favorite medieval philosophers, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about him as we move sort of closer to the modern period and so on and so forth. We will specifically be looking at his passages on friendship. So... Read that over closely, and we will talk about it next time. I'll talk to you then.